the basic theme I want to talk about tonight is uh, something I began a bit the other night about awareness of intentions and um, purifying aspiration. But really, it's a a partial answer, one of many answers to the question that comes up at this point in any retreat, which is, you know, how do we keep it up? Even if we could ever be aware in the first place, but how do we keep it up when we leave, when we're faced with all the complexities of life, right? So many pulls on our time and our interest and seeing how hard it is to really be aware with um, intelligent awareness, just, you know, standing in the food line, never mind when you've got so much going on at work or at home. And there's no magic answer. You know that now already, right? But so what I want to talk about um, in general is it from the angle of awareness of intention. Sort of as Steve was uh, talking last night when he talked about the cultivation of the paramis, those wholesome qualities, it's another way of looking at the fact that awareness practice, bringing awareness into our life, purifying the heart and mind through the wisdom that arises from awareness, is it's about transforming our consciousness in all aspects of our life, and every activity can partake of of this purification, of this cultivation of wisdom. There's nothing that needs to be outside. So, as Steve said, you know, the three pillars of uh, Buddha Dharma often talked about as uh, dana, generosity, sila, ethical, non-harming conduct, and bhavana, mental cultivation. And that, you know, covers all of our life, our thought, our speech, our actions. There's nothing that's so mundane that it's, it can't play a part in cultivating awareness, wisdom, and purifying our mind and heart. There's nothing so huge and gross and difficult or fantastic that we have to put it aside and say, no, awareness can't handle this. You know, this is too much, or this is too painful, or this is too much to do you know, with me. I mean, there's times awareness isn't strong enough to meet it, sure, of course. But to say that anything's outside, okay, awareness, uh, dukkha, and and impermanence, and Nietzsche, and non-self, it applies to everything but not this, you know. There's no not this, but we might notice which are the things we put in that category, because that's where we're stuck, because that was just a little aside. So how do we keep it up? How do we keep going? How do we transform our lives? The most obvious not the answer, but the most important thing um, is that the cultivation of awareness, the cultivation of mindfulness, the continuing uh, willingness to explore this and let our minds and hearts be purified and cultivate wisdom, the most essential thing to make this possible is that we have to want to. Not just, oh, this is a good idea, which we all do, you know, Steve was talking about the uh, Dharma binging, you know, it's a funny way of putting it, but we all, yes, and we go home, yes, I'm going to sit, and I'm going to, of course, we mean that on a certain level, but really, the recognizing the difference in your own mind and heart between 
when awareness is present and when it's not. In the quality of your responses to yourself in life when there's awareness or when there's not. You have to, it has to be something that you recognize for yourself as making a difference. And it has to be that, not just a good idea, but that you really feel in your heart, in your mind, a deep sense, in whatever way you put it, that this is what's most important in my life. And no one can do that for us. And it's not like, I'm not saying you should do it. I mean, I care just in that, you know, I want people to be awake and happy, but I'm not saying you should do it. I'm saying nothing else can do it for us. Um, And then it's hard as hell, even once we have that. But without that, we kind of drift, you know, we do it a little bit, we don't do it a little bit, we forget why we're doing it. And haven't people who've been practicing a lot, don't you hit times where you've been going along really into practice, whether it's a formal sitting or paying attention, and then suddenly, I don't know, it kind of peters out. We got too busy. Or actually things were going so well we didn't really need it anymore. Yeah, have you noticed that one? Luckily, in terms of that, something always happens (laughs) sooner or later. Ruth Dennison, who's this, uh, um, a t- uh, she's, she's quite elderly now, but she's one of the first women uh, teachers in Theravada in the West, one of, um, one of Goenka's um, Dhamma's sisters. And she's a very funny way of putting things. And you know, she said, you know, it's kind of samsara karma. is like there's always a little leak in the canoe. <laughs> It'll show up. <laughs> that can wake us up again. <laughs> but... <laughs> what I want to talk about is in the sense of even tuning into, if here on a retreat or when you leave a retreat, when our awareness has been more purified, we're more tuned into it, and we, we can really feel, yes, whatever way you phrase it yourself, I do, this is really most important to me, and we mean it, and we leave. But like everything, it's not a one-time motivation. It's not a one-time thought. You know, we can't just have the thought and then it, it, it just kind of runs in the background for the rest of your life. Have you noticed that? That the mind is constantly changing? Constantly changing. And that the seed of all of our action, as I said last night, the seed of all of our speech arises in the mind. It's all in the mind. So it's not a one-time decision, yes, now I'm committing to making the cultivation of awareness the centerpiece of my life. I can mean that. I can say that a million times. But it's, it will express itself, or not, in the moment-to-moment choices and decisions we make in the mind. How many do we make in a day, you know, through our whole life? So we start to get interested. Not, not this is, none of this is from judging, but from interest. If you leave here and you say, yes, I really want to see how can I continue to wake up with awareness, to bring awareness in even the most mundane, is to get interested in noticing our minds, watching our minds, the moment-to-moment choices we make, many of them really small, mundane choices. I don't mean every single one, okay? Don't make yourself crazy. But the choices we make, and you might notice when do we choose awareness, and when and why do we choose not awareness, which we do 
sometimes. So getting interested in that, to really, this starts to turn our attention even more in on the mind to see that all of these little choices and the big choices we make for awareness, for speech, for action, the big choices in our life, the little ones, what to have for dinner, everything, all motivation comes from within. All choices and actions originate with the mind. So the two aspects of that I just want to touch on tonight, the big one, like the overarching sense of aspiration, motivation, when I talk about purifying aspiration, but to look for ourselves, and more than once, but really deeply and really uh, honestly, and see what's really important in my life. What is the most important thing in my life? You know, this is not just some like la-la-la, but really kind of a deep inner looking. And then how we use that deep personal understanding to support our moment-to-moment awareness practice. How we use that reference point of our conscious um, connection, which we have to remind ourselves of, of what's truly deeply important in my life, how that can support us in the moment-to-moment motivations, the moment-to-moment intentions that run the way we live our life. So that's the kind of the, the macro sense of motivation, intention in the mind, and the micro moment-to-moment ones, the way I want to talk about it. So do you remember last night when I talked about compassion as being uh, first manifesting as a motivation and intention in the mind? Anyone remember? Well, two nights ago, okay, not last night. It all blends, I know. <laughs> so I just want to expand a bit. And it came up in talking to someone today, made me think I wanted to just say a bit about this. That wise thought, wise intention, intention being that, that moment in the mind when all the energy in the mind coheres, comes together in that impulse, you could say, that about to, that the the mental impulse that leads to, even thought, but that's pretty subtle to see, but that leads to speech and action. You know, remember I talked about just waiting for the impulse to lift the teacup and just exploring that. So, And that that moment, that little mind moment of intention, chetana, the word in Pali, arises together with, in each moment with all the different mental factors in the mind, right, which makes it wholesome or unwholesome. This wise thought, wise intention, samasankapa in Pali, is the second step of the Eightfold Path. Right understanding, right view, leads to how we think about the world, right? Right thought, right action. And that leads to the next ones, which have to do with action, how we speak, right speech, right action, right livelihood. It's very sensible. It's just how it works, very natural. But it's not often the way uh, we may tend to, without looking, think about or relate to how we assess if we're going to the usefulness, the wholesomeness, or the unwholesomeness of our actions. You know, that it all arises in the mind. And the Buddha said, he said, I say kama, which just means action, is intention. But when we look at our actions in the world, you know, there is that the internal mental intention that gives rise to it. That's usually the thing we notice the least. You know, it's the most subtle. 
Then there's the circumstances that may lead us to make a particular action, to make the choice. And then there's the outcome, if it's a particular choosy action we do. And don't we generally tend to judge or evaluate by the outcome? You know, how somebody receives it, how it works out. But as you say, that's the one that's the least in our control. But that's the one that we take responsibility for. And the circumstances around it, sometimes we're aware of the circumstances which could lead us to a more appropriate um, action when we know we're not colored by our own self-interest glacia. Sometimes we don't. The intention, though, is actually the heart of the wholesomeness, the unwholesomeness. Let me give you just a simple example. This is one that is from the suttas, from the Buddha. There was a, a monk, a bhikkhu, who was meant to be completely awakened, which would mean that he would never act, he wouldn't be capable of acting from hatred or aversion or harming beings or greed, you know. Just wouldn't it be nice? <laughs> I mean, just to think, you, you just, it, it's not even going to happen that you say something from aversion or act from greed. It's just not going to arise in the mind. Wouldn't that be so lovely? Well, that's a possibility, even in moments. Anyway, so he was walking back and forth in the woods, in the forest, doing his walking meditation. He was blind. I forget if I said that. And so some of the other monks saw him walking back and forth blind, and he was uh, treading on ants on a school that he didn't see. A school of ants, a swarm of ants, what do you call them? Anyway, a bunch of ants. And he was walking back and forth and killing them. And so the bhikkhus go rushing to the Buddha, saying, He's supposed to be an arhat. He's killing ants, you know. There can't, he can't be. And, you know, if you read the suttas, there's lots of places where a lot of the, the rules the Buddha made for the monks and nuns come from people coming, oh, he's doing that, and she's doing this, and, 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 and. you can kind of see the same kind of minds, you know, the same kind of minds. <laughs> Not so different. Just because you put on robes doesn't mean, you know, <laughs> it means you're, you know, cultivating, but it doesn't mean you're there yet. So... Anyway, this is where the Buddha, one of the places where he enunciated this, and he said, there's no way, he has no way of knowing right now, until you told that ants were there. There was absolutely no intention in his mind of ill will or harmfulness or even negligence, even delusion. Because you know, sometimes we can harm beings from delusion, just not taking care to pay attention. Have you ever noticed that? Like I've noticed, I, if I go in, in the shower without my glasses on and I see a little dark speck, I can't tell. I just think it's a bit of fluff. I have to actually go really down and look and see, oh, it's an ant. And if there's just the, oh, don't bother delusion or just don't even notice that you're not bothering, that's delusion. That's, a, that's an intention of delusion. So he didn't have that because he couldn't know. So the Buddha said there's no blame in that. There's no unwholesome action in that. Interesting, isn't it? Where we would say it's about the killing is bad. Now, now, this is, I'm saying, once he knows there's ants there, if he were to say, well, you know, I can't see them, so it doesn't matter, that's a completely different intention in the mind. Can you feel the difference? And so that's really the seed. And many of you have been noticing now when, we, when we've been seeing how much of delusion is assumption, you know, and how we're all assuming all this stuff about other people here, you know? A lot of people have mentioned it. And we do the same thing with intentions. We can never really know another person's intention, can we? So we judge by the action, or we judge it by how it makes us feel. But that, we don't know. 
I mean, heck, half the time we don't know our own intentions, do we? And the same action can come from lots of different intentions. You know, with the tensions, the motivation in the mind. The example I always give from that, because I see it myself easily, where there's somebody that you know well and care for has a particular behavior pattern that it may bother you, but you can see it's causing them suffering or alienating people. And your intention as you think about it, not around, is you really you want to somehow share this with them and your motivation as you're thinking about wanting to do it is actually kindness, right? You're already laughing because you can see all the different ways that that can manifest in actuality, right? And there is the possibility that one could with really get in touch with the sense of kindness, of wanting to help, get touch with metta for the person. You check the circumstances, you know, like you don't come in and they've just gotten back from work and they're completely stressed out and their boss was really, you know, pounding them and, and they feel horrible. And you sit down and say, let me give you some feedback, you know, to really help you in the world, <laughs> right? Complete obliviousness to their state and the circumstances. So there's a kind of delusion. It's not the, the pure metta intention. Or you want to say it, but you happen that you, you're waiting for the right moment, but then they do the behavior and it really ticks you off and you decide, now's the right moment. You know? <laughs> yeah, I've been wanting to tell you this for a while. <laughs> you get the drift. So the same physical words could come with so many different intentions. And then, even if you do it with the clearest, most kind intention, how the other person receives it is completely out of our control. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> and can we let that be without having to interpret it all? So this is where awareness of intention is both a subtle practice, it's a fat of our own. We're not working awareness of other people's. Let's just be aware of our own and seeing when we can be clear about it when we can't. And sometimes it's very complex, I'm not saying that. But to begin and continue to bring this into our daily life can be hugely transformative. Don't make up a big expectation, but just as we start to notice intentions before we speak, before we act, you see that when we notice it, it can give us, that awareness can really give us a moment of choice. Even in little things, simple little things, not like something horribly bad, but like getting in the car, sometimes when I get in the car and I'm driving 45 minutes here, anywhere is 45 minutes from here. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, I may be listening to a particular song or I may be listening to something specific, a Dharma talk or something, and that's fine. Other times I may find myself appreciating the silence and then suddenly I see my hand going out to turn on the radio. And I kind of, Why? Not, with a, not that I should or shouldn't, but kind of interested. And I tune in and I, I can see this, just this restlessness in my mind. I go, oh, I don't need to do that. Come back and it's like, appreciate the sound. Next moment, turn on the radio. Then I actually turn it on. Then I start noticing because there's never anything I want to hear on the radio. So the restlessness moved out, turned on the radio. I last 10 seconds, 10 seconds. I start flipping the channels. You put it on that one that scans, and then you can press it. You know, so it, you know, I'm, you know, I'm practically driving off the road out of restlessness. Change. I'm exaggerating a little. But watching this, without any you should or you shouldn't, but just watching the intention and where it leads, it really, it, it gives us so much information. This is exactly our practice here. 
But when we come in and say, no, I shouldn't listen to the radio, and we get tight, we're making the action wrong, but we're not learning anything. Watching the intention, I learn a lot, and I get more and more tuned into the restlessness. So I do that much less. It lasts much less long because I'm noticing all oh, that restlessness, and this is increasing the restlessness. It's not so helpful. It's not actually pleasant. I don't need to do that. And that's wisdom making that choice. That's not me saying good or bad. Very different. So the wisdom tuning in, and this is where the second step of the Eightfold Path, wise intention, right intention, not just any old intention, right, but the ones that are onward leading to awakening. And what's so cool about the way it works is that it's what we've been saying along, simply through the steady awareness, noticing what's what. The unwise, the, the suffering intentions, through the wisdom, naturally shift. So, and then there's very specific ones. The Buddha talks about the intentions, unwise intentions of greed, of ill will, and of cruelty. And that through awareness, the natural understanding that arises from awareness, the, the um, intention, the thoughts of greed naturally start to transform to renunciation, the letting go of attachment, and to generosity, as Steve talked about last night. Different from, I have to be a generous person. That's a kind of a forcing. But the naturally, oh, it feels better, as he was saying. Ill will, you know, thinking bad about people, thinking bad about oneself, naturally begins to transform to metta, to friendliness, to goodwill. And cruelty, which is just, you know, can just be cruel thoughts. It doesn't mean we're out. It transforms to compassion. The ability to just, as I talked about the other night. And it's this process is natural and normal. It's not like only if you're some super fine being. This is the natural effect of awareness seeing what's what. How the suffering intentions work in our mind, what the effect is, and what the effect is of wholesome ones. A friend of ours, Guy Armstrong, no relation, <laughs> who's, a, who's also a teacher of this, uh, he likes to say, when he looks at how this works, when he sees what we've been saying all along, that with the steadiness of awareness, not watching, watching yourself do unskillful things, with steady awareness, the wisdom that comes naturally starts to transform our habits to wholesomeness. That the wholesomeness, the purity, is more our natural state. He says that's what really um, gives him heart in the beneficent nature of reality. You know, that you can really trust that. It may not seem like it. When we look out at the world, that may not be the first thing that hits, you know, when you read the news. But when we look inward at our mind, we can really start to see that. But again, it's not a one-time, okay, now I see it, the habit's changed. Very famous, uh, well, famous because we say it all the time, <laughs> maybe it's not so famous, <laughs> quotation from the Buddha in this regard, in the sutta where he's talking about the cultivation of wise thought, wise intention. He said, just looking at his own mind before he became the awakened Buddha, he saw that what, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. Scary, isn't it? <laughs> if we're not bringing in awareness. But it's just nature. It's just obvious. 
the natural causes and conditions, whatever our mind, whatever habits it habitually thinks about, habitually goes in, that's the inclination. That's how we'll respond habitually when there's not awareness. Awareness gives us a moment of choice. That's why it's so powerful, so ultimately transforming. I give you, read you this, I just think this is kind of, and it's like we over and over and over, you know, just the willingness to look and work at it. This is from Dingo Kensi Rinpoche. He says he's quoting a Buddha story. Anyway, the, the Buddha, he says, was a very miserly person who was unable to give anything away. So he went to see the Buddha and said, it is impossible for me to be generous. What should I do? And so uh, the Buddha says, imagine that your right hand is yourself and your left hand is a poor, unhappy person. So give from your right hand to your left hand some old food which you don't like or need. Try hard to get used to this. Do this until you no longer feel miserly. We just practice wholesome intention, you know, however we can. So the man began the practice, but he was so miserly that at first he could only give away a few leftovers or food he did not like from his right hand to his left hand. (laughs) Gradually, however, he acquired the habit so the day arrived when he did not feel quite so miserly. So then he went to the Buddha and said, now when I give food from my right to my left hand, I don't feel so miserly. And the Buddha said, good, now with your right hand, which you take to be yourself, give some gold, silk, or fine clothes to your left hand, which you imagine to be a beggar. Try to see if you can give open-handedly. You know, just this, the man kept doing it, doing it, until, of course, he became uh, a great uh, benefactor to the poor and gave away and so generous and became an arhat. So, (laughs) they always end that way. But look where he started. We start where we are. This noticing the habits in our mind in reference to what's really important. You know, that's what can help us keep tuning in, what can help us keep practicing. So this is when thoughts matter. And it's a training. It's a training. So this willingness to just look at the small moments of intention. You don't start with you have to, you know, not every single one. And not that now you have to make the totally right choice with all your actions. But just starting to look at what we do in small moments. And a lot of insight can come, a lot of freeing, a lot of this shifting to from unwise to wise intention. So I'll give another very simple example. I mean, it almost sounds so silly to even mention it, but, but it happened to me the other morning. But this is the kind of little nothing moment in our days that awareness, we can really see how it can transform our um, our thought, our intentions by the choices we make. I mean, this is so little, okay, but getting dressed the other morning, and I had like a, a, a little book on my night table, some mystery novel, right? And so I was getting dressed, and I just have my time, and, and the, the mind just kind of looked at the book and said, oh, I just want to have a look in that book. And it was like I could really feel the craving. But my mind, I mean, I didn't even know what it was about. I didn't really want to look in the I mean, there was nothing in the book I wanted to look at, but the craving was really strong. I wanted to stop in the middle of what I was doing and pick up that stupid book and start reading it. You know, I'm getting dressed in the morning. And so 
you could go into a whole house stupid, but I just was kind of, you know, just letting my awareness watch all of that. And I, in the moment, I could see it. The choice was, okay, let's just stay with the awareness. I made the choice. It's all really fast. Stay with the awareness. Don't act on the wanting, but not shut the whole thing down and say, oh, this is bad. Just get dressed. I just watched the whole process. And I could see how that tanha, the wanting, can be so strong about something completely inane. So I'm sitting there going, no, I really want to look at that book. And I keep on getting, I really want to look at that book. And I was just watching all of this. This is maybe a minute, two minutes. And then at some point, you know, the craving just completely died away, just completely gone. And I kept on getting dressed. I noticed the craving completely gone. And the sense of spaciousness, peace and ease that's available in that moment of renunciation, in that moment when the mind lets go of the attachment to whatever. It doesn't matter to the whatever. Awareness is all that made that possible. And it seems like such a little moment. We wait for the big moments, for the big insights, but these little moments are available all the time. These are moments of where the, the habit of craving is being naturally transformed. I mean, it'll come up in the next two minutes, don't get me wrong, but it's being naturally transformed, where a habit is, oh, craving, when we just do it without even noticing. That's the habit that runs our lives. And so if we're into this is good, this is bad, that's not going to be enough to keep us looking. That just feeds our ill will, really. So this is where it's so helpful to get in for yourself a sense of your your larger aspiration, your deeper sense of what's really important in your life. And this is a place where you look at it in yourself, both with honesty, but not with um, a kind of self-deprecation. So say, I'm just saying, say it comes up, I really want to cultivate bodhicitta, the desire for the intention to awaken to save all beings. And then your mind goes, who do you think you are? Okay, Don't believe that second thought. It's not about who I am. It's about what's the intention, what's the deeper aspiration that guides my life. And this is what's going to give us the strength, you know, to actually keep bringing in awareness. I'm going to read you this little story from uh, Lama Surya Das. I saw in a book recently. He was talking about his teacher who died some years ago, Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche, who I only met very briefly, but from all accounts, he was really quite an amazingly awakened Tibetan master. And he had lived, you know, born in Tibet, lived in Tibet and in India, deep, intensive practice in caves and wandered for years as a beggar in India, an unknown beggar in India, you know, kind of like modern day Milarepa, you know, the real deal kind of thing, real filled with love. So very, very um, deep teacher. So he's talking about the first time he uh, was in France. There's some, quite some Tibetan monasteries in France. And he grew up in the Himalayas, never seen a beach. And so some of his students took him to one of the beaches in France. And so he'd never seen a beach, if you can imagine. So when he came back to the monastery, he began to give teachings. Oh, he, 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 the first time he's seen the beach and observed exactly what Westerners do there. Then he came back to the monastery, and he was giving teachings, regular teaching. Then all of a sudden, he started talking about the beach, and about he and Atulku had gone to the very edge of the ocean. And first he said, it's so big, he said, like in childlike awe. 
You know, can you imagine never seeing the ocean? But then he started excitedly describing what he had seen. There were these people there. And instead of sitting or meditating or doing yoga, these people were just lying there, almost (laughs) naked and doing nothing. And then when they were tired of lying there, instead of doing something, they just turned over. (laughs) And then they lay there again for another few hours. Kempo was truly, genuinely perplexed. You know, he said, you know, he said what were they, why were they doing that? He said over and over. He couldn't understand it, but he had so much compassion for them. He said, how could they waste their precious human existence? He continued, this lifetime is so short, so tenuous, so precious, so valuable, so necessary, a life not to be squandered, but to be used impeccably, usefully for the benefit and welfare of all. A life to be used, and also for the future in the next life, not just to lounge around all day in the hot sun like a big sleeping lizard. (laughs) Kempo was sincerely impassioned now. I just wanted to go wake them up. He said there was a big white chair, you know, about 50 meters away, obviously the lifeguard's post, he said, but there were two young people sitting there, so I couldn't go up, but I wanted to badly because I wanted to climb up there and announce to everybody it was time to wake up. (laughs) But you get the sense, I mean, of the deep compassion. It's not like a, oh, stupid judgment. It's like, wow, this precious human life, what's really important from somebody who's really dedicated his life in that way? So I say this not to make us feel bad about ourselves, but to give a story, an example of that possibility of tuning in, again, for us, not with judgment, for tuning in for each of us with this deep sense of possibility of what is really important in my life. And that's up to each one of us. I'm not saying what it should be. I have my opinions, but I'm not saying what it should be. But to really tune into it. It's a powerful force. And so I'm going to talk about, of course, mostly in terms of our Dharma practice. But the sense of um, consciously connecting in yourself with what your deepest aspiration is. And of course it may change over time. That's fine. That's what I mean, but we keep purifying, we keep checking in, we keep seeing what's really important. And it serves as a, a guideline, a strengthening, a clarifying in terms of the smaller moments of intention, of motivation, when we have to make decisions. It's described in terms of um, some of the commentaries, some of the Buddha commentaries, that what it does, when we have a sense of the overarching motivation or intention, or aspiration, not the moment-to-moment intention, aspiration, that it serves the function of collecting our dispersed energy and helping us really um, focus our um, aspiration and actually do things in our life supported by the reference to this, our deepest motivation, that we we didn't even think we could do. Without that, we tend to just kind of, we go through life and we respond to conditions, you know, by reaction or from habit or, oh yeah, this will be good for now, but we're not really looking at the big picture. We can kind of, you know, we can kind of drift through life. Not being bad, we can drift through life being good people. 
but without a sense of a, a greater um, aspiration that really can guide us in our choices, helping us align, not to just drift through life. So in terms of this is something that we all know, the ways we make choice. If you have children, if you have family members that you need to be responsible for, to take care of, don't you make choices in your life You give up some things, you choose not to do some things, you choose to do other things that may be unpleasant or not not what you'd most want to be doing if it was just in response to that particular thing. But when you're making the choice in reference to, this is going to serve my child, you do it. And you do it, yeah, more or less happily, you know, but we can actually bring in the compassion, the love, the wholesomeness, the generosity, and do this action that without that higher aspiration, we might do out of aversion or resistance. And instead, we're doing it out of metta. You get a sense of that. It gives us so much more strength and power to do stuff. We can do it in ways that aren't particularly wholesome, too, but it can give us enormous um, focused, collected energy when we have a higher aspiration. So back to tennis. I was reading... uh, It's really, you know, sports, I can see why sports are really a a good way to look at qualities of mind, wholesome and unwholesome. But I was reading the the autobiography of Andre Agassi, who was, you know, he was a big tennis, American tennis player. And he seemed like he was being pretty um, honest in his autobiography with all the struggles he went through. But describing what it takes for someone to play tennis at that highest level, and I'm sure it's this with any other sport and with other things too, at that highest level, from the time he was really young, whether it was forced by his father, but then when he did it himself, almost everything he did, what he ate, how much he slept, had to come into how is this, is this going to help me play my tennis or is this going to have a bad effect? You know, and they learned to calibrate everything they eat. And once he got married and had kids, and he'd say, I'd have to think, can I go to the beach with the kids for an hour? Not if it's on a, in the middle of a tournament. Even an hour at the beach is going to so, you know, un, unbalance the energy and how he has to get it together to go play a match. You couldn't do it. And so, so, you know, for like 34 years, that's his life. Everything is in service to playing the best tennis he can. That's amazing to think of. I don't want to think what the motivations are, but that's an amazing quality of commitment and focus. So imagine if we bring that quality to awakening or to serving all beings. What's possible for us? So then when we have to make decisions, we can refer to what's really important. There is um, an interview many, many years ago I read, I read with um, Aung San Suu Kyi. I mean, you're all aware of her story now. So when, when it was when she was still under house arrest and had been for quite some years. I don't remember if it was before or after her husband died, but anyway, it was during all the difficult times. And she said, um, I'm paraphrasing, I just remembered in my mind, I don't have it here, but she said, people think I'm, I'm so amazing, or think I'm so uh, amazing, but I'm really nothing unusual at all. So I, never, she never, I never planned to be the icon of the Burmese democracy movement at all. All I ever do, I just do, if something needs to be done in the name of love, then I'll do it. 
That's all. You know, and so just from that clarity of what was most important to her, in the name of wisdom, in the name of love, then I'll do it. Not some other big thing. And so where, where our deepest motivation, aspiration takes us, we may not know that. It's much more about our motivation than about my aspiration, in terms of Dharma practice, in terms of awareness practice. Yes, it can be our aspiration is to purify our heart and mind or to cultivate compassion, bodhicitta, to wake up. But the form it's going to take, we don't know. So it's different from, I mean, one could have the aspiration to earn a million dollars and really, really focus on that and do it, or like a tennis player, where it's more about the outcome. But here it's really looking at deeply, what's the guideline in your life? What's really important? And then realizing that it's a lifetime of moment after moment after moment, just bringing kind awareness to what it is we're doing. From Dingo Kensi again. The whole thrust of the Buddha's teaching is to master the mind. If you master the mind, you will have mastery over body and speech and your own and others' suffering can only come to an end. But if the mind is left full of negative emotions, then however perfect the actions of your body and the words you speak might seem, you are far from the path. And guess how mastery of mind is achieved? Through constant awareness of your mind, of your thoughts, and of your actions. Just cultivating this simple, steady awareness, what we've been doing here the whole week. Maintaining this mindfulness in the practices of tranquility and insight eventually will sustain the recognition of wisdom, even in the midst of ordinary activities and distractions. Mindfulness is thus the very basis, the cure for all samsaric afflictions. So just this willingness to look deeply, to see what's really important for you. And if it is on the level of cultivating awareness, of cultivating freedom or of compassion, something along those lines, then really trusting that awareness, that mindfulness is the tool, is the key. Let that deeper aspiration fuel our willingness to choose awareness when we notice we might have a moment of choice. So this is when we purify our awareness over and over again, purify our aspiration over and over again. It is work. That's okay. It's at least a lifetime practice. That's okay. This is Dingo Kensi again. This time, do what is important. This time meaning this lifetime. This is really looking from the vast perspective. So he says, throughout our many lifetimes in the past, we have taken many different forms. We've been rich. We've been poor. We've been beaten by our enemies. We've lost everything. We have had all the pleasures of the gods. We've been the victims of political oppression. We have suffered from diseases. And all of those experiences of happiness and suffering have brought us nothing. But now, in this present life, we have entered 
you know, into the path of the Buddha. We've entered into any path of awakening. We have met learned and accomplished teachers. This time we can make such circumstances meaningful and do what is important. If a merchant visiting an isle of jewels were to return empty-handed without his cargo of gems, he would be ashamed to show his face in public. It's the same for us, who at this very moment have such favorable conditions for the practice. The Dharma has two aspects, exposition and practice. Exposition is only the work of the mouth, and many there are who do not practice the teachings explained. (laughs) As the saying goes, many have heard the doctrine, but those who implement it are few. Even those who have practiced a little can get sidetracked and get lost. So as far as the Dharma is concerned, practice is more important than teaching and talking about it. The Dharma is something that we really have to do. But we only really have to do it this moment, this moment, this moment. And returning consciously to clarify your aspiration brings energy, brings faith, brings the willingness to do, brings the trust that this is really what's most important to me. It makes it possible for us to hang in when the times get really difficult. So I just want to give two, two different kind of, one's a reading, one's just a reflection about when, we're, when the potential for, even when we think we're good people, of just acting out of habit and drifting, and then the potential when we really have deeply internalized our deepest commitment. They're just two examples. So the first one was um, a couple of years ago. I was spent the summer in Munich. And after being there many years, I decided I wanted to go visit Dachau, Dachau Museum, one of the, um, uh, they've made it into a museum, one of the... Um, Thank you, yes. Concentration camps. And so I went one, one afternoon, one weekend after. I was really glad I went by myself because I could just be quiet and go through it. And um, it was really interesting. It had an effect on me different from what I might have expect, expected. What I might have expected was just, you know, the horror of it and just being horrified. So there's that, of course. But more, it, it re-inspired me in trusting practice, entrusting awareness, entrusting, it re-energized me to rededicate to practice. So going through, I thought it was, it was set up well as a museum where different rooms and kind of different placards describing different aspects of the people that were interned there, all the different uh, races and the, you know, the people who were gay and people who were of the Roma and different countries and Jewish people and, you know, whatever, all different people. So you got a sense of the, the vastness of all the people who were there, people, local people, faraway people. And then they would have placards describing, you know, some of the guards or some of the people who lived in the nearby village or all different aspects. And often when they would talk about a, a specific kind of thing that went on, they would either um, people who were interned in the camp who, who were really heroic and filled with compassion really helped to help each other, people in the camp who were just the opposite, you know, and would, would turn on each other out of fear, same with the guards, same with local people. They would always give 
all different kinds of stuff. So they get, I got a whole sense of the vastness. And this was only one camp of so many. And, but they would have like one, like a picture of someone who was an example. So it made it real. It made it personal. And also I was just watching all the different people, people from all over the world, German people and Polish people and people from Japan, just people from all over the world going through and watching them, and you could see people would just kind of, just the mind would just settle, and they just go from room to room and get more and more attentive, actually, more and more present, more and more. I was watching people, and it was really interesting. It wasn't like people were just chit-chatting, but it wasn't like they were just going, oh, horrible, and running out. They weren't getting angry. They were just, just hits on a level. Well, how it inspired me in practice is, Getting a sense of the vastness of, you know, you can't just say, oh, a few, a few really evil people, you know. It's like, it's so many people are involved. And then I don't want to say this is just about Germany in World War II. We can look at how many places in the world just in the last two decades where there's uh, one ethnic group turning on another ethnic group, one race turning on another race, neighbors turning on neighbors, how it so can happen. You know, I don't even have to go into all those, but you know, it's not about one country in one time period. It's about seeing, wow, how can this happen? And the sense of how it made it personal was that I really saw, oh, it's mostly normal people, good people. And it's not like, you know, 10 million people set out to say, now I'm going to slaughter the other ethnic group. It's not like in, in Rwanda, you know, I was, okay, now the Tutsis and the Hutus made some big plan. How did all the good people get involved in that and act in that way? And so then I just could only come back to my own mind, my own experience, but seeing how when, you know, we just, you never, we never know where our next step is going to go. No one in 1932 knew how things were going to end up in 1944, in 1945, right? Nobody could know that. And so we each make the little decisions that we make in life, you know? And if we don't know how our own minds work, and we can only know that from the steadiness of awareness, if I don't know how to be with fear, even a little fear, then if some weird situation's coming up and I'm afraid to say something or I'm afraid, so I just say, well, it's just easier not to do it. And the fear runs the show. And it doesn't seem like a big decision in 1932 or whatever, but then it grows. It grows and just we just don't know how we're going to end up acting. What we frequently think and ponder, that becomes the inclination of our mind. So if my tendency is to just, that's too difficult of a situation, and it's not my business anyway. And this could be anything, you know, walking, seeing two young kids start to fight, you know, in the, on the sidewalk in New York. So, well, they could be nuts. I don't know what's happening. They could be on drugs. I just got to stay away. Yeah, that's the right thing to do. And I can see them acting from fear. Just go, it's not a big deal. And it's not such a big deal. But our habits strengthen, our habits strengthen. And when we just end up acting reacting in life and not knowing how our minds work and not knowing how to bring awareness to the unwholesome intentions. Okay, but maybe I should say something. Maybe I should do something, you know. Then I have no idea how I would act if I were in a situation like that. I've never been in one. I don't know. But all we can do is have this willingness 
to bring awareness to our intentions here and now, the littlest ones can end up having a huge effect, you know? Because it's just, we're just all people, all our minds work the same. So that's one way, right? It really re-motivated me, re-inspired me, you know? Not to say, oh, the world is horrible and people are horrible, those are horrible people. It's like, whoa, this is where our human mind can go without wisdom, without the ability to see, without the ability to be with what's unpleasant in my own mind and to act out of compassion, to act out of wisdom, to act out of, not out of fear, for some greater purpose that I can tune into for myself. We still never know what's going to happen. That's all we can ever do. So then I want to read another thing, which is kind of the reverse. It's not, not Buddhist, but it's, again, a sense of when someone has uh, and keeps reconnecting with the really deep aspiration in their life. And it's, this, in, in this case, supported by other people sharing it, just like we talk about Sangha here, the power that that can have in one's life to guide one's life. So this is a reading from the autobiography of John Lewis, who is uh, a congressman from Georgia, has been for many years, but he was one of the original Freedom Riders from Nashville, as a student in Nashville back in 1959, 1960. He was one of the original uh, group of young students who founded the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee called SNCC, which when it was founded was really based in Gandhian and Christian principles of nonviolence. They're very, they're very deeply committed to that. And so he's, um, he's writing here in, in this, what I'm reading, he's talking about his days then, but he's talking about the principles of Gandhian nonviolence, which all their um, actions, the freedom rides, the um, actions sitting in, in cafeterias, all of their work was based in this very deep principle of nonviolence that they were, um, they were, they were just young students and they were being trained by uh, an African-American minister named Jim Lawson who had been in India and uh, he'd been a conscientious objector in the Korean War and had studied Gandhian Satyagraha but also a Christian minister. So anyway, that's the background. So this is John Lewis talking. He says, one of the most fundamental principles of the Gandhian notion of satyagraha, nonviolent action, is that it is not merely a technique of achieving specific goals. It is not simply a means to attaining political independence or racial desegregation. It is not just a tool to achieve unity and freedom in the world around us. True satyagraha, as Gandhi taught it, is about a fundamental shift inside our own souls. It is rooted in the achievement of inner unity, of inner freedom, of inner certainty, a place we find within ourselves, a calm, sure place. And once found, that place is not swayed or disturbed or affected by the thousands of details of the world around us that bombard us every day. So then he's talking about suffering from this He says, suffering is nothing more than a sad and sorry thing without the presence on the part of the sufferer of a graceful heart, an accepting and open heart, a heart that holds no malice towards the inflictors of his or her suffering. This is a difficult concept to understand, 
and it is even more difficult to internalize. But it has everything to do with the way of nonviolence. We are talking about love here, not romantic love, not the love of one individual for another, not loving something that is lovely to you. This is a broader, deeper, more all-encompassing love. It is a love that recognizes the spark of the divine in each of us. And I have to say, this sounds exactly like what Dingo Kensi was saying about pure perception. I just want to put that out. This is in the Christian context. That recognizes the spark of the divine in each of us, even in those who would raise their hand against us, those we might call our enemy. This sense of love realizes that emotions of the moment and constantly shifting circumstances can cloud that divine spark. Pain, ugliness, and fear can cover it over, turning a person toward anger and hate. It is the ability to see through those layers of ugliness, to see further into a person than perhaps that person can see into himself that is essential to the practice of nonviolence. And it is a practice. It is a way of life. This is something Lawson stressed over and over again, that this is not just a technique or a tactic or a strategy or a tool to be pulled out when needed. It is not something you turn on or off like a faucet. This sense of love, this sense of peace, the capacity for compassion is something you carry inside yourself every waking minute of the day. It shapes your response to a curt cashier in the grocery store or a driver cutting you off in traffic, just as surely as it keeps you from striking back at a state trooper who might be kicking you in the ribs because you dared to protest against an oppressive government. If you want to create an open society, your means of doing so must be consistent with the society you want to create. Means and ends are absolutely inseparable. That to me is a great example of clear comprehension of deepest aspiration and the moment-to-moment working. And to me it's a great example of the cultivation of awareness and wisdom, metta and compassion. So we just start where we are and we never give up. Well, thanks. Let's talk for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.